0: What we're going to do this morning is we're going to continue talking about something we started talking about last week. Uh, Don't feel out of place if you weren't here. I'll get you all caught up. But we are talking about this matter of the death of a church. We're pausing our study of Romans. Typically what we're doing, if you're new to Omaha Bible Church, is typically we're going through a book of the Bible, studying it in its context and seeing what it's all about. Romans is all about God's great salvation. And we're having that on pause just for a few weeks looking at this matter of the death of a church and you might be thinking to yourself why on earth would they be talking about the death of a church in a church well that's a fair question and the answer to the question basically is the world is filled with dead churches On every continent, there are churches that once were alive. They were once committed to the basic truths of Christianity, and they're not anymore. We would say they're dead churches that are all around. Not only that, what is also true is that history shows us that the overwhelming majority of churches that start out alive, committed to the basics of Christianity, end up dead. They don't have a very long lifespan. And so in light of the fact that there are so many dead churches around, in light of the fact that so many churches that were once alive are now dead, and it looks like history probably will repeat itself, it's a good thing to talk about. It's a reasonable thing to talk about. And so we're talking about the death of a church in hopes that ours won't die anytime soon. And so that's what we're doing for these next... uh, We did it last week, today, and probably be done next week, and then get back to Romans. I have to tell you on the side, I've been studying Romans 5 and issues related to Romans 5, so it's about all I can do to do this for another week, And uh, but I do want to finish this and so we'll probably wrap this up next week. What we did is we began looking, we'll continue looking now at some assumptions that churches seem to make. If you look at history, you look at churches, you look at theological institutions, uh, you look at denominations, there are assumptions that they begin making that seem to point to their coming death. Last week we looked at at assuming the gospel. When an institution, when a church begins to assume the gospel, the truth about Christ, that He came here to live a perfect life because we couldn't. He obeyed God's laws perfectly because we can't. He he went to the cross to, to bear the wrath of God that we deserve, that He rose again from the dead on our behalf to give us new life. When a church or movement begins assuming that and not emphasizing that as first and foremost, which is what the Bible says is true, it's a sure sign of death. This morning we're going to look at a second assumption, and that second assumption is assuming theology, assuming theology. And when I say theology, I mean the study of God, the truth of who, who God is as He's revealed Himself. And then next time, Lord willing, we'll look at assuming biblicity, assuming that something's biblical. And then we'll also look at assuming doxology, which is just a fancy word for glory. We assume the glory of God. And so let's begin now looking at this business of assuming theology. When I say assume... It's something we take for granted. When I'm assuming I'm taking things for granted, I'm not emphasizing it. I'm not promoting it. I'm not passionate about it. I'm surely not defending it. That's what happens when I'm assuming something. When I'm assuming theology, I'm assuming the truth about God because theology in its purest sense is the study of God, the truth about who God is. And so if I'm assuming theology, I'm assuming God. I'm assuming the truth about God. I'm just taking the truth about God for granted. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning because that is one of the signs or one of the assumptions that dying churches and institutions have made over and over again. And it doesn't matter how much God talk they still do. It doesn't matter how many other good things they're still doing. If you assume God, you're in big trouble. The writing is on the wall, you know, R-I-P. But there is not a resting in peace when you're doing this because you're talking about the death of a church and that's not peaceful at all. We, we, we caught a little glimpse of this when we heard in Revelation chapter 2 earlier Jesus commending the Ephesian church for doing some biblical things. They were intolerant of false apostles. They were discerning. They, they, they had certain biblical moorings commendable things and yet jesus says to them if you recall jesus said in verse 4 of chapter 2 but i have this against you that you have left your first love it's pretty much agreed upon what that is your first love what did you love first when you first became a christian You love God. You love Jesus Christ. You love His gospel. You love the truth about Him. And so the the idea is you're doing biblical ministry on so many levels, which is really good. (laughs) But you're about ready to have your candle snuffed out by me, Jesus Christ. And if you read chapter one, Jesus Christ is not a sissy. You know, he's not a, a woman with a beard wearing a dress. You read chapter one, Jesus is all powerful. He's the creator. He is the judge. And He says to this church, unless you repent, you're a dead church. And I will issue a sentence. And you go, gulp? Serious business. Because they'd walked away, they'd forgotten their first love, they'd forgotten, if you will, theology. They'd forgotten God in all of this, which is astounding, which is amazing. But yet at the same time, and you start to think about your own life, you start to think about life in the church, and here we are, Omaha Bible Church, and we want to do biblical things. We want to be discerning, and we want to do biblical ministry. and, And we do take this seriously, and we should. And you know what? Christ commends it. He does in Revelation 2. But He says, I have this against you. If I can paraphrase, he said, you've forgotten about me. You've forgotten about your love for me. And that's a real danger for us. That's a real danger for any church. And when that line is crossed, it's not that you can't go back because Jesus says, repent, but you're in great danger. In this light, one thoughtful observer of our culture, of our churchianity kind of culture, made this observation. I would just ask you to listen to this good cultural observation. So we're busy becoming culturally relevant, reaching out, drawing in, making disciples, managing the machinery, utilizing biblical principles, celebrating recovery, user-friendly, techno-savvy, Finding the purposeful life, practicing peace and justice, utilizing spiritual disciplines, growing in self-esteem, reinventing ourselves as effective church entrepreneurs, and in general, feeling ever so much better about our achievements. Only then to say, notice anything missing in this pretty picture? And he says, Jesus Christ is missing. Jesus Christ indeed is missing, he says. Now, in light of all of that, generally speaking, churchianity, as we're doing all of these things, we're not denying Christ. We're not denying God. But we're assuming God. That's the issue at Ephesus the issue so many times with us. That is the issue of a dying church or a dying denomination or a dying theological institution or whatever it may be. So what I would like to do is look at some signs. What are some signs of assuming theology which is an assumption made by dying churches so that we don't die, at least this week? (laughs) I have a huge long list of signs okay let's do three be done with this part knowing that there's more to be said and then we'll move on next week because i'm itching to get back to romans so some signs that we're moving from where we need to be alive focused on god some signs that we're drifting away to the point of if we drift this far we will deny the truth about god because we'll be a dead church What are some signs along the way? What are some signposts that we can see so we can avoid these signs? My list isn't inspired in so many ways. I hate preaching these kinds of sermons because it's not explicitly coming from the text, but we will look at text after text. And I believe history would support these signs as being signs that are evidences of assuming theology, which is something dying churches assume. Number one, we'll put most of our emphasis here because of time. Silence about theology. Silence about theology. Silence about God. Silence about the study of God. Silence about who God is. Again, not denial because only dead churches deny who God is. But a sign that we're moving our way there is we, we stop talking about it. We're quiet about theology. We're quiet about God. Maybe let me introduce it this way. If someone comes to Omaha Bible Church this morning uh, and they walk in the door, let's use a different church, somebody walks in the door of a church and the smiling greeters are there and they say, how can we help you? And the person says, I would like to know where the class is on God. What's going to happen? They could say it another way. They walk in the door and and the greeters say, how can we help you today? And, And they say, well, I would like to know where the theology class is. More often than not, I don't think I'm being facetious in thinking and assuming, the, the greeters are going to say, um, uh, and who knows what else they're going to say. Maybe they're going to say, well, you know, we have a lot of different classes that teach you a lot of different principles that will help you to live a relevant Christian life, because we are very relevant as a church. Theology, church, theology in church (laughs) you know what they should hear you know what i hope would happen at omaha bible church the sign of a living church with with a greeter who's thinking and on their toes granted the person comes and says where's the class on god where's the theology class can you direct me the greeter would say which one which, what age group, which one would you like to go to? Because they should be able to say every class we have is about God. Every class we offer is a theology class. Whether you're talking about the, the, the adult Bible school on the one hand, or you're talking about the, the, the little kids, smallest kids group, it's about God, Or everything in between, whether you're talking about middle school or high school. They're all theology classes because they're all classes about who God is and what God says and what God has done. That's how it should be. And you say, how can you say that? That's your opinion. Well, it should be that way in light of a very important passage in the Bible, and it's Deuteronomy 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we learn about theology. And If you turn there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, fifth book of the Bible, not too hard to find. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy 6 is one of those verses that you want to have starred in your Bible. If you've been a Christian very long, it will be, uh, or you'll know the passage. Deuteronomy 6 is a passage, if you were to talk to anyone who is uh, a Jew, who knows anything about their Jewish history at all, would know this passage, even if they didn't know where it was in the Bible. Uh, this is a passage that we're also going to see in the New Testament. Jesus gives, if you will, His stamp of approval that this is the passage of all passages. Okay? I mean, this is, this is the big one, and I talk about it more and more, and I'll continue talking about it more and more because it's supposed to be that way. This is the Shema, this is the Shema, however you want to say it in Hebrew. The, the, this, is, uh, this is God's call to His people. If there ever was a major call, this is it. And it is Theological. Look what he says in verse 4. Hear, O Israel. There's the Shema. It's the call to listen. Stop what you're doing. Listen to this. If you're going to listen to anything he's saying, listen to this. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. The great statement of statements. There are some great statements in the Bible. Some key statements like, in the beginning, God. Well, this is one of those kinds of statements Hear, O Israel! The Lord our God, the God, this God, Yahweh, is one! It's a theological statement. It's the theological statements, a statement, if you will, in one sense, of all theological statements. There's only one God! Monotheism! And everything, 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 is built upon this. And then there's other things that are true about God, but we're talking about the one true God. Know this. If you don't know anything else, you need to know this fundamental principle of theology, he says. And then there are implications of this one true God. Implication inseparably tied. This one will be more familiar to you maybe. Is in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God. With all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Think about the logical connection. If there's only one God, you don't have split devotion. You give Him all of your love. You give Him all of your devotion, all of your worship. It doesn't go to to many gods. And it doesn't go to yourself either because there's only one God and He's not you. And so he's calling for passionate, full-orbed, 100% devotion to this theological truth, one God. Commitment to him. And then he goes on to talk about how this is to be all-consuming in verse 6 and verse 7, verse 8 and verse 9. I mean, everything about their life was to keep reminding them about this God and being devoted to this one God. And if you would please have it locked in your mind. That verse five, six, seven, eight, and nine, especially verse five, please get this, is impossible without a deep knowledge of who God is. If you don't have deep theology, how can you love God with all that you are? One assumes the other. One absolutely assumes the other. Jesus himself said in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-eight, 38, this is the great and foremost commandment. Affirming Deuteronomy chapter 6. I say, why, why are you bringing all this up? Help me, help me come back to where we are. If we assume theology, we don't focus on it, we don't emphasize it, we don't go deep there. There is no way we'll do what we're supposed to do. There is no possible way we'll be committed to loving God the way Jesus said we're supposed to be loving God because, quite frankly, we don't even know who He is. We can't assume theology. And a sign of assuming theology is not talking about it. And the people of Israel were said, you do everything you possibly can. You decorate your whole house so you talk about it all the time. Decorate your body that way that's how theologically oriented you are that way you'll remember so think with me if you would about the story that we tell as we speak to people whether it be from the pulpit or middle school little tiny kids what what story are we telling week in and week out, day in and day out, not to mention in our homes, what story do we, do we keep telling? Who, who's the hero of that story you, you keep telling? Who's central to all of this story? Who keeps being emphasized? Well, if it's anyone other than God as the hero, the central figure to the story, if it's anything or anyone else, can you hear the death march? Should be able to hear it on every level, and he's including children here, most certainly including children here in Deuteronomy 6. Central to the sermon, central to student ministry, central to everything. I mean, if we were a club, then who knows what we would emphasize. But he's saying you emphasize God and loving Him with all that you are, not Shh, don't say something theological, it might not be relevant. Here's a question for you. Which best describes the Bible? A, the revelation of God. Or B, a Christian how-to manual for life. I hope you're saying to yourself, it's the revelation of God. Because if you read the Bible, that's what you'll conclude. You'll say, this is God revealing himself. And you know what? God is so central to to all of the stories. God is so central to the whole thing. You know what? He's acting like, you know, like, like he's God or something. That's exactly the point. He's the hero to the whole thing. It's not about how you can figure out how to slay the giants in your life. Hello? It's not about that at all. It's about God being powerful on behalf of his people through David in that case. There's a fundamental reality. When you read the Bible, you say, you know what? God is the hero. Um, God is a central figure. This whole story is about God. It's about theology. And I'm supposed to love this God with all that I am. He plays lead role. Well, that should be in the way we tell, quote, unquote, The story as well. By the way, this is not outrageous. I didn't come up with this on my own. This is like historic, fundamental, basic Protestant Christianity, if you will. Historic religious liberalism has been committed to, the Bible is all about principles for living and how to do this and how to do that in 10 easy steps on how you can have more self-confidence or whatever it might be. It's to take God off of the throne revealing himself and to put you there and have it be a how-to manual. Read some history. It's pretty interesting. And what are we doing in evangelical churchianity Christendom? It's all about how I can live a life more confidently. It's all about this, that, or the other thing for me. I'm not trying to discount application because we're supposed to apply. Even pastors are supposed to. There's application. It's all applicable in some way or another. But please don't lose sight of the fact, unless you want to be part of a dead church, that first the Bible is about God. In the beginning, God created. And then you go through the whole thing and it's all about God, 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 God. Remember, I know it's profound, but Christianity is about Christ before it's about anything else. Not too long ago, I I heard Sinclair Ferguson, who is uh, an excellent preacher and writer, and I like listening to him preach. Pastoral staff was at a conference that Ligonier did, and we're there, and Sinclair was preaching, and he was talking about something like this. He had a good illustration. He said, you know, here's where we are. Too many times. We read the Bible like we read that book that was popular a number of years ago, Where's Waldo? The only difference is, we're Waldo. Oh, where am I? You know, Genesis chapter 2. Where am I? Oh, I, I'm reading through the Bible. I'm in Second Kings. You know, what does it say about me and my life? And, and Esther and me and Job and me. Waldo, 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 Waldo. And that's kind of a good thing to say. I think it's a good illustration because Waldo's kind of a dumb name. <laughs> At least that's how I feel about it. You might think Pat is a dumb name. All right, fair. Sorry I hurt your (laughs) self-esteem. But the point is, when you read the Bible like that, I hope you're going to say to yourself, where's Waldo, you dummy? It's not about you. It's about God, first and foremost. Yes, there's application along the way, but stop trying to have it be all about you. Remember Romans 1, you know, don't be an idolater. and Have it be all about you. Where's Waldo? Let's have a hermeneutics class, how to interpret the Bible Waldo style, you know? And we would all love it because it's all about us. Well, it's a good thing I don't tell you how what I'm really thinking about or I'd really be bold. Well, I'll give you one more illustration. I had lunch with a pastor friend of mine this week. We hadn't been together for a while. We talked about, you know, this and that and the other thing. And he said, you know, one thing I've been getting more and more criticism of in my preaching is, is not using uh, enough application, not enough applicational preaching. And so we talked about those people, and we prayed the imprecatory psalms on their heads that they would die. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> he just said, you know, I'm kind of discouraged, and I just keep hearing it more and more. And it was good for us to talk about, because you know what? You're supposed to apply the Bible. That's Second Timothy 3, 16, 17. It's also Second Timothy 4. Pastors are supposed to reprove, rebuke, exhort. I don't think they're looking for that kind of application. But anyway, I mean, there, we need to apply the Bible without question and... and Surely he could work on it. Surely I could work on it. But just maybe to give a little perspective on this, well, I, I retranslate that when I hear that. Most of the time, not all the time. When someone says, "You know what? It's not good preaching because there's not enough application. Doesn't apply directly to my life enough." Blah 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 blah. I retranslate, and how I hear that is, someone saying, "Pastor, I want to hear more about myself in your sermon." Oh, I hear that. Instead of Deuteronomy 6, here's my response to the person for more application. I want to say, "Hear this. Oh Christian, there's only one God. He's our God, and you know what? You're supposed to love him with every ounce of your being. It's about him. How's that for application? And quite frankly, if you're doing that, you don't have any time for anything else. Forget about Waldo. You're a Waldo. It's about God. It's so much better, right? Thank you for asking me how I really feel, and I can share that and get that off my chest. I hope you I hope you, you're at least kind of getting it. There are all kinds of dead churches. Here they are, dead. Notice it's on my left. <laughs> There's all kinds of of liberal dead churches, all around. And you go to some other countries and you see a lot more than here, but you see plenty here. But based upon the things we're doing, in our where's Waldo approach, silent about theology, you know what? It's just a ma- It's just a matter of time. It's just a, it's a given. And I don't want to be that. I don't want to be a part of that. And so if I can play part of Jeremiah a little bit and say this has got to stop, then I want to and Another sign, another sign of assuming theology, which is an assumption made by dying churches, is disconnecting theology from practice. Disconnecting theology from practice. Now, do notice, I hope you've seen, that nobody's denying anything. It's just we don't talk about it. Well, here's what I mean by denying theology from practice. Here's who God is, reveals himself, and he does tell us to do things. But our tendency is as we're drifting toward deadness is we don't talk about the theology anymore. We just tell people how to do things. And where you see practical, 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 practical apart from the strong, solid foundation of the gospel, Christ, the theology of the cross and all of those things, what you have looks a lot like dead Protestant liberalism. What you have is a sign of death. And by the way, what you have is legalism. Rules and regulations, apart from the cross, apart from grace, you have no power, you just have moralizing legalism. I'd like to give two illustrations that are biblical illustrations of this. One would be with morality, and the other would be with marriage. If you turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter... Yeah, Ephesians 5. If we don't connect what we're supposed to do with who God is, it's a sign of death. It's happened over and over and over and over again. It's a sign of legalism. Now, let's talk about morality, and and let me just come right out and say God cares about morality, He doesn't mince any words. but there's a certain approach to morality that's vital and essential for us, lest we act like dying churches. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Mincing no words, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints, among Christians. Verse 4, and there must, not, there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting. It's tied to, to immoral issues. He's not speaking in general which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's just calling it like it is, pretty straightforward. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. And if I said there's something wrong, you should fire me. But let me ask you, What's missing? Now, I could stand here and be true and biblical and say immorality is a sin. And there's a place for that. I've done it before. Preached through Ephesians. Who knows how many years that took. I could stand here and say stop sleeping around. That would be biblical, right? Grounded in Ephesians chapter 5 in paraphrase form. I could say, you know what? Immoral people don't go to heaven. It's from that text. God doesn't mince words about it. But let me ask you. If I did that, what's missing? I just told you how to live your life, what to do or what not to do, but but what's missing, what's horribly missing... What's horribly missing is any theology behind it. What's horribly missing is the the truth about God, the theology specifically of the gospel. What's horribly missing is any reference to the cross, which is where the power is to not do those things. And now I just sound like a moralizing legalist. And it's all wrong. It's all wrong. And we look like dying religious liberals. Please look closer. This is grounded in theology. It's grounded in theology. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. This is what is missing. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. Oh, here we go. Here we have gospel truth. And gave himself up for us an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now now we're on to something and at least now the message is, is better. Because it's tied to the gospel and Christ dying for you. So now this is talking about something that's happened. It's changed. Now you can be a new creation in Christ and so on like that. But then it's, it's not only tied to chapter 5. That's just like the Cliff Notes version. That's the abbreviated... Do they still have Cliff Notes? Am I just showing I'm old? Do they have them? Little yellow booklets? Anybody? Maybe not. Maybe? Okay. All right. I knew them well. <laughs> <laughs> This isn't even a detailed chapter 5. He's assuming you read Ephesians 1, 2, 3, and 4, specifically 1, 2, and 3. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 has been all about theology. It's all about theology. How in chapter 2 specifically, you were, before you were a Christian, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You know what? If I can paraphrase it this way in the verses that follow verse 1, you know what? Satan had you by the nose dragging you around. You were a slave to your own sin. You were a slave to him. And it was awful and horrific. And in in one sense, you couldn't help it. You're such a rebel against God. and And he wasn't saying back there, you should be moral. He gives all the theology of that. Then chapter 2, verse 4, he says, But God, God intervened. And then he talks about the cross and the gospel and all that Christ has done. Then he talks about being raised with Christ. And he talks about all of this gospel truth and all the stuff that Christ has done for us. Verse 6 of chapter 2, raised us up with Him. Oh, we have that covered. Then we're ready to move on to chapters like chapter 5. And to say, you know what? We were dead. Now we're made alive by God's grace. We were raised with Christ. Romans 6 gives us more details about that. So if we're united with him in resurrection, we're not enslaved to sin anymore. And now the message is appropriate. Because we laid the foundation of theology, who God is, what God has done, specifically through his son, Jesus Christ. You can have forgiveness You can, no matter how you lived. And you can have new life no matter what kind of life you had before. And with that new life, there's new power over sin. And now that you have that, chapter 5, stop sleeping around. But that's not the message we give to the unbeliever or the people we assume are believers because they've never heard the gospel or I don't know what. And all of that to say there's just one example that is a good and appropriate example. If we tell people what to do without telling them what God has done, we're just legalists and moralizers. And you know what that leads to? Them producing more legalists and those those parents are going to be legalistic parents and they're going to create more legalists and we're going to have a dead church. It's always about the gospel. See, what we can't do is, is think we're smarter than God and think, oh, you know, this theology stuff, I don't know. Let's just tell them how to do it. Let's just jump to the punchline. It's not how God thinks. No power in that. Let me give you one other example. You ladies will like this one. Another example of this talking to people about practice and not Theology first, which is a sign of assuming theology, is marriage. Since we're in Ephesians 5, it's a, it's a good place to, to go for an example. Look at Ephesians 5.25. It says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives. Okay, here's the wrong thing to do. All right, men, I'm going to give you, you know, 17 practical tips for being better husbands so you can do this. Now, it isn't that there's not a place for giving helpful hints. But keep reading. He says, Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Oh, okay. We've heard that before. Um, you need to be willing to die for your wife. Or you could just say you need to die for her. Die to self and live for her. And then you'll have a good marriage and you'll honor God. Now, it's getting better. But this is assuming something huge. It's assuming that you understand the gospel. It's assuming that you understand the good news about what God has done for us in Christ, even though we didn't deserve it. It's assuming the theology of Ephesians 1 and 2, especially. I did something for a men's conference in in, in Nashville, I don't know, a year or so ago. And and when I talked about this issue about husbands and wives, I spent most of the time, you know, doing a quote unquote marriage seminar talking to them about substitutionary atonement. You know? The key to the seminar was talking to them about the gospel. And here's why. Please don't check out on this. Here's why. What we learn in Ephesians is when Christ dies for His church, the bride, the church is dead in trespasses and sins, offenses against Him and being led around by the devil. And if we cross-reference to Romans chapter 5, we would also learn that, that even the enemy word is used. When Christ dies for His church, His church is an enemy, hostile against Him. See, that's we've been learning all that kind of stuff in Romans. But here in Ephesians, you learn it too, abbreviatedly, in chapter 2. And so, if you have that solidified in your mind and you read Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, now you're ready at least to deal with the issue. Because here is the issue. It doesn't matter who your wife is. It doesn't matter if your wife is the worst wife on the planet. I guarantee you she is not as against you as we were against Christ when He died for us. I tell men, I don't care if your wife drinks a 12-pack before you get home just to spite you. And I don't care if she weighs 500 pounds. I don't care if she swears like a sailor. I don't care if you think she's out to get you and spends all of the money that you work so hard for. I don't care. Here, here. Let me play the violin for you. Because if that's your issue and you give me this business like every husband does and in my heart I want to do it too. You give me this business about well as soon as she stops doing blah, blah, blah then I'll do dead giveaway. They don't understand the gospel. They can say they do but they've given themselves away they don't get it. I'll get it. We're busy down here. This is the gospel. We're against God, and God loves us anyway. We're busy offending God, enemies of God, and God sends His Son anyway to live a life of obedience for us because we wouldn't and couldn't, and then to go to the cross and bear His Almighty wrath for us because we deserve it because we're rebels, and then to rise again from the dead for us so we can have newness of life. That's the gospel. If you believe in Him, if you trust in Christ as that kind of substitute on your behalf, then you will have Christ's righteousness. That's the gospel. And if I get that as a husband, I at least am now capable of understanding the verse. It's not to say it's easy to apply the verse. But what do we do? Let's do a marriage seminar. Seventeen principles for this. And it always becomes, as soon as she, then I will, and blah, 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 blah. Doesn't matter who your wife is. She's not as against you as you were against Christ. That's all. And this changes everything. This changes everything. But the sign of a dead church is we just tell people principles, for Christian living, to have a happier life. We leave God out, we leave the gospel out, therefore we're just legalistic and we're moralistic and we're not exalting Christ, which is where the power is anyway. As you can tell, I feel strongly about these things because I feel strongly about the gospel. And we are busy as a dying church, if we are a dying church, robbing people of the privilege and the opportunity of exalting Christ by doing the right thing in light of what He's done. Dead churches don't do that because they don't preach the gospel. They don't emphasize theology. They don't connect theology with living. Before you know it, the church is dead. Finally, one more. A third sign that we're assuming theology, which is an assumption made by dying churches. We can make this one quick, and that is the disappearance of heresy. The disappearance of heresy. False teaching, things that are not true, false doctrine, however you want to say it. If you slide over here in dead churches and you're a dead church, you don't really believe in heresy. There's really no such thing as heresy. On our way there, we're going to think less and less about heresy, less and less about about false teachers. You know, as long as you're sincere in your heart, as long as it works for you, as long as you feel good about it, as long as you don't hurt others, as long as, as long as, as long as. But you see, If you teach theology about there's one God. He's revealed Himself and you should devote your whole life to Him. And not only do we know that there's only one of them, He's all-knowing, the Bible says. And not only is He all-knowing, He's sovereign, He's in charge. Not only that, He speaks, He's revealed His will to us. Not only that, and the list could go on and on and on about who God is. But as you're speaking about theology you're about god or theology and you're not being silent about it you know what you can't help yourself but to believe in heresy because as you're emphasizing the truth anything that is counter to that truth is counter to that truth and therefore it ends up being wrong and so if there's only one god and you say oh no i too can become god and populate my own celestial planet mormonism that's heresy that's wrong well who are you to judge well, this is just who God says He is. That's all. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to, you know, be devoted to God. So that's just how it is. But the less I emphasize what's true and right, the more I look like this over here. Now we're not looking at any passages. Maybe I'll just give you one example, and that would be the book of Colossians. The whole book. Read it. Ready? Go. Colossians is one of the most Christ-exalting books there is. I mean, you've got this great stuff about Jesus Christ, exalting Him, who He is, what He's done on the cross. But all wrapped up and intermeshed in the book of Colossians, that New Testament book, is the Colossian heresy. Because those truths about Christ were being opposed. See, when when you're speaking the truth you will believe in the reality of that which opposes the truth. Not because you're trying to be mean, but that's just how it goes. Two plus two can't be four and five at the same time. Galatians is the same way. This great, magnificent, Christ-exalting book, it's all wrapped up in the Galatian heresy. But when we're not all wrapped up in Christ and who He is and who He said He is, anything goes, anything goes, anything goes. And you know, we eventually get over here and you know the only heresy to us if we're dead those people who believe in theology as truth and absolute, those people like the people at Omaha Bible Church. The only heretics on the planet to the dead liberal are those who actually believe in something that's absolute. The only thing they're intolerant of. It's very interesting. When we don't emphasize God and who He has said He is, we will more and more be okay with anything. But as we do that, we'll just look like who knows how many churches that have gone before us. And it shows we've lost our first love because if we really loved Christ and Christ has said, this is who I am, you know what, as nice as we're trying to be, you say that's not who Christ is. Those are fighting words. Just how it is. The more a-theological we become, the less we'll care about false teaching because it will show that we care less and less about Christ. Let's end on a positive note. Positive note is this. I've purposely been saying the death of a church. I haven't said the death of the church because if I'd said that, that would be wrong. Dead wrong. Pun intended. Remember, churches have been dying for a long time. Even before the Bible was all done being written, you've got churches dead. Okay? So this has been going on for a long time. But remember Matthew 16. Jesus himself said, as he gathered his disciples around him, it's pretty interesting the way he did this, It's before he goes to the cross, he gathers the disciples around him, he leaves Jerusalem where the people of the one true religion gathered, to go to Caesarea Philippi, a pagan region. You know, at least that way you know black and white. Let's go hang out with the pagans to get away from these guys who are prostituting the truth. And he takes them to Caesarea Philippi, gets some peace and quiet just around the, the, the temples to the goats and all this kind of stuff that's around there. And he goes there, literally. He goes there Ask them who they say he is, affirms Peter, you know the statement, and then he says to Peter, I, what, will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. In other words, I'm going to go to the cross, but not even my crucifixion can stop it from happening because I'm going to rise again from the dead and I will build my church. So with all of my heart, I believe in the church triumphant. I believe the church will prevail. The church will never die. But churches will die, church after church after church. And Christ will keep raising up new ones who will promote the gospel, who will promote theology, who will promote the Bible, who will promote Him. And so, let's find the balance. I'm going to go to sleep at night, tonight. I'm not going to get an ulcer laying there on my pillow. You know what? Christ will build His church and it doesn't depend upon me. nighty night. But on the other side, I feel the pressure and the tension because you know what? I don't want to be—I don't want to be one of those people who's part of a dead church. And so, I want to repent where we need to repent, and I want to make sure the first love is the first love, and we're focusing on God. And I hope you feel the same kind of tension, confidence, boldness. Christ is going to do it, but you know what? I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of it. All right, we'll wrap up next week and then we'll get to Romans. If I can stand it, maybe I won't be able to stand it. We'll probably do that next week. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for, sounds strange, but even thank you for these churches in the book of Revelation. Not all of them healthy. Some of them showing definite signs of death. Think even of the Laodicean church. And Lord, we're thankful for this because it's part of history and we know that you can use this to teach us about who you are and what you require and certainly what you've done. And we don't have everything figured out here but we do know that Christ is glorious and Christ is the great Savior who forgives and grants righteousness and we cling to Him and we cling to that reality and we do want to exist for the exaltation of Christ. We do not want to exist to please people. We don't want to exist to somehow be good politicians and make church people happy. God, what we want to do is we want to exalt Christ through thick and through thin no matter what out of a love and devotion for him. Thank you that you will build your church. Please use us in the process. In Jesus' name, amen.